Garma talks about seven tools or factors or skills that are necessary to achieve any degree of awakening or liberation from suffering. And uh, the problem with having a important dharma uh, idea that has seven factors to it is that it kind of sucks because to give a talk about seven different skills is impossible to do well but if you drag it out over seven talks it's really frickin' boring I have to use frickin' because sometimes this stuff gets played on small radio stations and they get in trouble with the FCC when I curse. <laughs> I'm a New York Jubu, that's a Jewish Buddhist, and uh, we love to curse, but they take my favorite thing to do right out of my... All right, I have to, I have to focus. Um, so, seven factors. Um, one of the seven you do, and I'm just going to summarize them really quickly. One of the seven is done, is suggested to practice all the time, and that's called uh, sati. Sati is roughly translated as the word mindfulness. It really means internal awareness, knowing at every given stage of life, whether you're talking with someone, whether you're eating, whether you're watching TV, whether you're uh, going to work, whether you're taking a shower, whether you're wa you know, waiting for a train, every moment of life having some idea, how does your breath feel? Is the body, do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable? What mood are you in? what kind of thoughts are present in the mind. So, that's what we're asked to do all the time. If you think about like a rowboat with three oars on the left and three oars on the right, mindfulness or internal awareness would be the boat itself. You have to stay in the boat. So, that's the practice we do all the time, developing internal awareness. But then there are the three factors that cultivate inner peace. Um, those three factors are one, being able to uh, focus the mind on something like we did at the first part of the meditation. So it could be the breath or sounds or metaphrase or focus the mind on something. Two, use whatever you're focusing the mind on to develop tranquility. So, for instance, if you're focusing your mind on the breath, breathe in such a way, long out-breaths, that it calms you down. And then three is to be as impassive and as disinterested or detached from everything outside of that concentration object as possible. So while you're practicing uh, with the breath or with a metaphrase, anything else that happens, you, you get a text message, you get an email, you hear a sound outside, somebody calls your name, whatever's going on, you say, okay, I know that's happening, but right now I'm doing this. You don't try to push it away, but you just 
remain kind of indifferent. If you do those three things, those are the three tools that will develop some inner peace. So those are the three tools that quiet, develop calm and ease. Focus on something, whatever you focus on, use it in a way that makes you feel peaceful. So if you're repeating a metaphrase, repeating that phrase at just the right amount that it feels quieting. And then there's uh, being indifferent to stuff outside of the concentration object. Now, there are also three factors that liven up the mind. So you want to do those three quieting and tranquilizing practices if you're anxious, if you're agitated. But if you're really tired, disinterested, unmotivated while you're practicing, these are the three tools that liven you up while you're practicing, meditating, wanting to be mindful. One is you try to keep in mind skillful uses of your mind. You can be creative when you meditate. I've been on retreats. I've like tried to see how far I could glide up and down the body with the breath, or I've played games with counting the breath, or I've uh, developed thoughts of all the people in my life I care about, or I've reflected on all the things in my life I feel I've accomplished, or uh, there's lots of things. The Buddha didn't say we can't recollect on skillful themes, so that's totally appropriate. And then there's also joy, really cultivating a lot of pleasure and happiness and excitement and enthusiasm in your practice. Feel good when you meditate. Try to recognize that you're doing... <laughs> you're doing something that's really good. So, the final factor that's an enlivening factor is called uh, Dhamma Vikaya in Pali, and that's the topic of tonight's talk. Dhamma Vikaya is a theme in Buddhism that's mentioned a lot, but very, very, very few talks on it, because it's a little, at first, difficult to grasp, but once you get the hang of it, it's actually quite, not only easy to understand, but it's very, very useful in our day-to-day -day lives. So, Dhamma Vikaya, literally it means using your mind to analyze your mind, turning your attention to the way your mind works. Another way of putting it is actually thinking about thinking itself. There's a new psychological term that actually describes this practice very well. It's called metacognition. Metacognition is the ability that you have as human beings to focus your attention on literally how you're using your mind. Let's examine that for a second. Those of you who have ever heard of David Foster Wallace, he was an American writer. He wrote 
really long books like Infinite Jest. His writing was famous for being what's called metafiction. Why was it called metafiction? Because it was writing about writing. Jean-Luc Godard, a French filmmaker, made movies about movies. You're probably thinking around now, what have I gotten myself into? Anytime you call attention to a process, not to the content, but to the process that creates content, you are engaged in meta. Meta is stepping back from a process and analyzing the process itself. So in this case, the process is thinking. Learning about how you think. This is actually a very, very important tool that the Buddha mentions in all of the teachings on Bojana. So, when we are faced with repetitive, intrusive, obsessive, distracting thoughts, we generally have two strategies that we employ to try to deal with it. One is we jump into the thought, like a train that's heading in any direction, we don't care, we just get on the first subway that pulls into Union Square, and we just go with it. Here's a thought. It says, heading to really bad destinations, like worry and catastrophizing, but I'm going to climb on board because it's my thought, and I'd rather be sitting here thinking than focusing on something outside in the world at this moment. So I'm going to just jump on the worrying train and see if it leads me anywhere good this time. <laughs> the other thing we try to do is we try to repress thinking, which absolutely doesn't work. There's a wonderful book by the clinical psychologist Dan Wagner, Harvard, recently deceased, wonderful, wonderful, important psychologist who showed that the attempt to repress thinking doesn't work. When you tell somebody to repress a thought, they actually wind up, on average, thinking that thought significantly more than if you give them permission to think that thought. The book is called, by the way, White Bears, and that's what they did the studies on, White Bears. Think the thought about white bears, not white bears themselves. They, had, they said, try, here's a thought, white bears. And to have they said, okay, don't think about white bears. And to the other group, they said, think about white bears whenever you want. Then they had them free associate, and the people they told not to think about white bears thought about white bears far more often than those they gave permission to. So that's the way our minds work. They did that, they replicated that study again and again and again, and it turns out that thought suppression almost invariably doesn't work very well. At best, what you can do is put off a thought for a little while, but then when it comes back, it'll be twice as strong and twice as difficult to repress. So it's a, it's a no-win strategy. So there's a third approach that the Buddha is talking about here, which is rather than jumping aboard every thought that comes into mind, agreeing with it, fleshing it out, seeing where it leads, writing that book, one of my favorite books I used to write in my mind was What Do Other People Think About Me? That's a really fun book. It involves 
fear, speculation, and other people. What could go wrong? So, so there's a third approach, which is to, instead of pushing away or jumping aboard, detach from the thought and see, okay, does this thought lead anywhere good? Observe it, see where it plays out, and see if it produces any wisdom. This practice requires that we also do mindfulness, which means we maintain some awareness of the breath or the feelings or the body, because if you're not doing that, you're simply going to climb into the thought and be whisked away. So to do this practice, you have to keep in mind, am I breathing comfortably? Is my out-breath long? You just keep in mind something in the body. That gives you that distance from the thought. I'm literally acting it out from you. This is my <laughs> awareness down here, and this is my thought. <laughs> and here I am. And I'm with the body. I'm with the breath. And this is up here in my mind. I wonder what's going to happen to me in the future. Will I have enough money? Probably not. Ooh. Maybe I should climb inside. No, I'm going to stay down here in the breath. So, that's the, uh, that's the, that's what we do. We keep the breath in mind. And we stay observing the thought until the very end, and then we see what does that thought produce? Does it produce direction? Clarity, concrete ideas, things to do that are very obviously clear-headed and uh, directional and wise? Or does it produce obsession, more and more thinking, confusion, doubt? So we're looking, Dhammavidya asks that we keep the thought in mind and we observe how it plays out. And does it produce any wisdom over time? Let us listen to the Buddha as he describes this practice in the tale in the Dedavipaka <coughs> Sutta, which is, I think, number 18 of the Middle Length Discourses. 18 or 19. <coughs> Friends, before I became awakened, an idea occurred to me why don't I observe my thoughts to see which thoughts were useful and which weren't? And so I watched them, and I noticed that when thoughts, which were infatuated with short-term sensual pleasures, appeared, I saw that eventually they led either to my suffering or to the suffering of others, and that they impeded wisdom that they created confusion and mental agitation. So the Buddha is saying here, I stuck around, I watched thoughts that were about sensual gratification, getting something pleasurable. Ooh, maybe I could have a drink right now. Ooh, that doesn't lead to much clarity. <laughs> I saw the same outcomes for thoughts fixated on ill will towards others. As I noticed the dire consequences of these thoughts, over time they subsided and they fell away. So notice, he doesn't have to repress the thoughts. He simply sees, shows himself over time that these thoughts don't lead anywhere good. And gradually, they naturally begin to dissipate 
because rather than climbing into them and believing them to be true or repressing them, he's showing himself from outside that the thoughts aren't useful. This is something very different that most of us do in our lives. Then I noted the outcomes of thoughts of putting aside short-term sensual pleasures and friendliness towards others. These thoughts didn't lead to anyone's suffering, and they cultivated wisdom, clarity, and inner peace. So I practiced sustaining these thoughts. Now that's interesting, too. Unlike the negative thoughts where you have to watch again and again and gradually they fail away, the ones that are really useful, you have to work keeping going. You know, you ever notice that to be true? Like the thoughts that are like, oh, I'm going to tell that son of a bitch off, me, 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 They go on and on and on. But the thought that's, maybe I should call a friend and talk about it, that comes up once. <laughs> Friends, whatever one keeps pursuing with is thinking and pondering that becomes the inclination of the mind. Here the Buddha is basically predicting one of the first most important rules of neuroscience, that neurons that fire together wire together. In other words, how you use your brain creates neural grooves that will make it more likely that you will continue to think in the exact same way. In other words, the Buddha is saying is it's good to as soon as possible start figuring out which thoughts are not very useful, because if you keep thinking them, they'll become neurally ingrained. So how can we practice this in our day-to-day -day life? How can we begin to um, learn about our thoughts? Here's one practice that really worked for me. 22 years ago, when I was meeting with a Buddhist teacher, and I was talking about all the things that agitated me, and I noticed that one of the things that agitated me the most was that there were certain people that I was, con I, I was convinced didn't like me, and I was also equally convinced that their dislike of me wasn't fair, as if, by, uh, as if to be happy you had to make everybody happy with you like you. So um, that's actually violating Albert Ellis, the great uh, cognitive behavioral therapist's law that the first way to create cognitive dissonance and, and suffering is to try to make everybody like you. But anyway, worrying about what people thought about me. So the teacher said, well, why don't you have one day where you... Uh, well, first note, he said, first note, how often thoughts about what other people think about you come up in your brain. Don't judge them, don't push them away, but just stand back and count them. So that he was getting me to practice detaching from thoughts and seeing how often thoughts arose. And I started to notice that those thoughts, what is the, I wonder what that person thinks about me, came up a hell of a lot more than I was proud to admit. But then, I realized what I could do with this practice is I could start having one day where I gave myself permission, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, to worry as much as I wanted about what other people thought about me, and Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays 
I made off-limits days to that thought. When that thought would arise, I'd say, hi, there you are. You're welcome, but this is Tuesday, not your day. Come back on Wednesday. <laughs> if it was a really loud, but no, 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 you got to think this. I'd say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write you down. I'm going to give you a minute. I'm going to write down what you want me to think about tomorrow, and I'm not going to think about it. <laughs> and I just noticed what happens on the days I thought as much as I wanted about what other people think about me, and then what happens on the days where I have to think about anything else in the world but that. And I noticed, guess what? Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays were a hell of a lot more fun. I don't remember what I did on Sundays, so don't ask me. I probably read it. <laughs> like God, who doesn't exist, I rested on Sundays. Um, so, uh, I didn't have a practice on Sundays. So, that's one way you could do it. Some of us, if we're really caught up in preoccupation, we're in a new relationship, we're really worried, Ooh, what do they think about me? Why aren't they calling me? Why didn't I get a text? Blah, blah, blah. You might have to do this not on a full day basis. You might have to do every other hour. One to two, I'll worry about the she or he, what are they thinking? Do they like me? Is this a failure? Why did I have sex with them? <laughs> Why? One laugh. I got one laugh. <laughs> and then two, two to three, I don't think about that. No matter what. I say, when that thought comes up, I'm like, okay, you're three to four. Then four to, you get the idea. I'm not going to count this up for you. I mean, you're intelligent people. So you get the idea that you give yourself time to observe the thought and then time to not think it, and then see what the results are. Is your mind clear? Are the thoughts better? Are you more capable to focus? What results from different kinds of thoughts? The important thing about observing thoughts is, one, that you don't assume. Now, if I told you, for example, to try this with worrying, you would all go, but I know that worrying doesn't lead anywhere good. I know that worrying just causes catastrophizing thoughts, and I'm not happy with it. But worry will still come up again and again and again, unless we actually show the right hemisphere, which is the part of the brain that actually controls attention and focuses awareness. We have to literally show the right hemisphere that something doesn't work again and again and again for it to finally stop pulling us aware, our awareness to that neural circuits when they arise. The right hemisphere determines which thoughts you focus on, which memories you focus on, and in order to deter it, you can't try to logic or reason with it because it's not particularly got any logical or even language-based particularly circuits. What it does have is emotional circuits, and it tends to focus on ideas and charge memories that are associated with fear or survival. And so if we want to pull awareness eventually to loosen the grip of fear, worry, anxiety thoughts, catastrophizing thoughts, preoccupied thoughts with uh, people in our life, we have to literally take the time again 
and again and again for a while to show the right hemisphere that it doesn't work. But beautifully enough, eventually the right hemisphere gets the clue and it stops pulling our attention to those thoughts as they arise. I really do not think anymore about uh, what people think, particularly about me. It just doesn't really... I try to live my life by the Buddhist ethics, but if people don't like a talk, if they don't like something I write, and believe me, every time I write, there's always a troll in there. And I'm just now happy as a clam with them. I don't care. But to get to that point was not a matter of logic or reasoning or repression or telling myself that those thoughts aren't useful. It was a matter of showing the brain over and over again that these types of thoughts don't lead anywhere skillful. The same like catastrophizing, worrying what's going to happen to you 40 years from now. All of that. So, interestingly enough, uh, the Buddha listed this practice first in the five ways to remove unskillful thoughts, Sutta, which follows directly after. Um, two, investigation doesn't take anything personally. So long as we have the idea, this is my thought, I have to think it, it's arising in my brain, so it must be important. We have to, to practice this, we have to abandon that idea that every thought is important because it's my thought. You might have by this point realized in your life that your brain talks to you in ways at times that you would never let anybody else talk to you, nor that you would ever talk to anybody else. For example, you might, if you're anything like me, when you make a mistake, you might have an immediate thought, well, I'm a complete jerk. If you go through a breakup, you might have a thought, well, that's it. I'm doomed to be a lonely person for the rest of my life. Would you ever tell that to anybody else who just went through a breakup? I'm sorry, but, you know, you should probably get the clue, the hand. <laughs> You're never going to be with anybody. <laughs> But my mind used to, oh, by the way, you really suck. <laughs> Thank you. So um, it's really, really useful, actually, to begin to detach from thoughts and really begin to be suspicious. Most of us find this to be a little bit odd because, one, we think our thoughts are who we are. Actually, the thinking part of your brain is a very, very small region of the left hemisphere called the interpreter circuits. The thinking part of your brain is a very small minority. You've got emotional circuits, survival circuits, you've got circuits that control homeostasis, digestion, heating your body. You've got circuits developing habit routines. You've got a lot of different circuits, and only a few of them have to do with thought. But most of us think, oh, that's my thought, that's really who I am. i got to think this one because it's happening in my brain. So we stand back from it. Keep really simple questions in mind. Does this lead to clarity? Does this lead to concrete steps? Does this tell me something to do, or does this lead only to more confusion? I'm going to end with 
some quotes by my favorite neuroscientists about Dhammavikaya. The ability to view our mental activity is considered to be the highest use of the brain. It's when we're most conscious. It asks that we use not just the thinking part, but also the temporal parietal lobe and the dorsal lateral lobes, because to think about your thoughts from outside, you have to be able to use a view your brain like from a different perspective, in essence, as if you're somebody else observing your thoughts. One teacher of mine used to call it like being an anthropologist from Mars who's landed in a human body and is just observing these thoughts like, oh my God, what are these things? So let's listen to a couple of neuroscientists. V.S. Ramachandran says, self-awareness uses the mirror neurons to look at myself as if someone else is looking at me. The mirror neuron mechanism that originally evolved to adopt another point of, another's point of view is turned inwards. Those are the very same neurons that develop compassion and kindness. So actually, while you're detaching yourself and observing your thoughts, you're also exercising the same region that develops compassion. Alex Clearmans and Bert Timmermans, two Belgian uh, neuropsychologists, say metacognition takes time. It's an active, trained process during which the brain continuously and unconsciously learns the consequences of its own activity. The brain does not know in and of itself that there are causal links between one activity, i.e. thinking, in one area of the brain and activity in another, i.e. stress, confusion, emotional depression, etc. It's only through developing this skill that we learn to make these links.